Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Lunatics Radio Hour podcast. I'm Abby Brinker, sitting here with Alan Kudan. Hello. And today we have for you the history and the impact of the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I have a question. Okay. Is Jekyll and Hyde a universal movie monster, universal monsterverse? You know what I'm trying to say. Are they part of the universal monsterverse? They are. Is that a a phrase? It is not an official phrase, but yes, they are part of, they are universal monsters. I see. Okay. That's all. Question answered. Okay. Great. So full transparency. I did not watch the original Jekyll and Hyde movie. You mean the original or the universal? The universal is not the original. No, there's actually an early one from 1920. Typical. But that's like, you know, it's like a silent film. Is this scary? Did you see it? It's not. Of course, it's not scary. It's from 1920. I've seen like clips from it. Movies from the 20s are terrifying. Not in the same way that like Hereditary is. The scariest movie ever made. (laughs) Yeah. One of them. It's it's right up there with uh, An Inconvenient Truth. (laughs) <laughs> but here's the thing. There's so many Jekyll and Hyde iterations, both like within like the universe of calling the characters Jekyll and Hyde, I think like upwards of 19 or 20 films and then very similar takes on it with like different character names. And we're going to talk through all of that, but there's just so much to get through with this one that, you know, and it, and it is, I think, from movie to movie, it can be very repetitive, right? Because it's kind of like the verbatim story being told over and over again in a lot of the cases. And there's some, you know, funky versions, but for the most part. So I think we, you know, we did our diligence here and we have a strong sense of the subject matter going into this episode. Okay, so I know in most of our episodes, we really do our best to avoid spoilers, Oh, yeah. There's going to be spoilers. I'm just going to rip off the Band-Aid right here, and, right here and now. Let's do it. Jekyll and Hyde are the same person. Dun, dun, dun. Which is a huge reveal in the book. We both read the book for this. Yeah, and the book was written in the 1800s. So you've had plenty of time to read it. <laughs> you've had a lifetime to read it. Yeah, and I think like most people are, that's a spoiler, but like most people are very aware, I think, of the premise. Sure. Before we get into everything, because we have so much to talk about, one housekeeping item super fast. It is now October, our holy month. We are so happy (laughs) that it is October and we have some really fun things going on. Anyway, the point is for October, for the month of October only, we are having the biggest merch sale that we are ever going to have. 25% 25% off with the code SPOOKY25, all caps, SPOOKY25. If you go to lunaticsproject.com, click on merch on the top right, and you'll be taken to our merch store. We have tons of very cool designs from very cool designers. A lot of takes on like our episodes, like there's Mothman, there's Killer Cars, there's Mermaids, there's a Death Tarot card design. There's so many designs that we really love and we think are really cool we wanted to offer something special this month, but again, it's it's not going to happen again for a very, very long time. So head over to lunaticsproject.com, click on merch, spooky25, and that will last until Halloween through through the month of October. 
There we go. Housekeeping out of the way. That's all I wanted to say. Thank God. Shall we do sources really quick and then get into the fun stuff? Sure. Okay. There's an all things interesting article called Meet William Brody, a BBC article by Stephen Brocklehurst, The Real Jekyll and Hyde, an Atlas Obscura article by Eric Grundhauser, The Creepy Cabinet That Inspired Jekyll and Hyde, a Screen Rant article by Zach Gass, 10 Best Jekyll and Hyde Movies Ranked by IMDb, a Ranker article, Famous Cases of Dissociative Identity Disorder, a MyClevelandClinic.org article on Dissociative Identity Disorder, and of course, Wikipedia and IMDb. Today we are talking about the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. In 1886, right at the tail end of the major gothic horror wave in literature, Robert Louis Stevenson's novella, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, was published. It went on to inspire 19 film adaptations, 11 major radio dramas, over 10 television adaptations, several books, comic books, and video games. Video games? Mm-hmm. Like what? Well, we'll see. We'll get into that at the pop culture section. Oh, jeez, yeah. come on. This is just our introduction, you know? I want to play the Jekyll and Hyde video game. I mean, it, it does sound really fun. <laughs> Especially, like, I love anything that's, like, gothic, Victorian-themed. You know, that setting. It's I mean, I'm just imagining it for ideal. being, like, original Nintendo, where you're just, like, side-scrolling <laughs> and have to, like, stomp on little kids. <laughs> that's funny. If you haven't listened to the audiobook, I just want to say it's fairly short because, again, it's a novella. So it's about three, three and a half hours. There's versions on Audible, but, spoiler... Our friend John Cook for the Fado podcast has kind of partnered with us around this episode. And starting October 30th, he's going to be releasing his version, um, his narration of it on the Fado podcast. So that would be a free alternative to buying the audiobook if you are interested in, in listening to it around Halloween. Which is always a great time to listen to spooky things. Absolutely. Now, the one on Audible. There's a fairly, there's a bunch, because again, this is, what's the term? Not duty-free. That's at the airport. Public uh, domain. It's public domain. Thank you. Also duty-free. <laughs> uh, so, you know, anybody can put out a version of this audiobook. And or any, that's why there's so many adaptations of it across mediums. Absolutely. It, yeah, it can be recreated as many times as possible, and I honestly wish more stuff was in the public domain. Yes. However, uh, there's one on Audible by Richard Armitage. Armitage, I'm not sure how you say his name, but he's a, I don't know, I really like his stuff. I, I thought he was like one of the selling points of the, the Hobbit movies. <laughs> um, but it's, it's a very fun read. Yeah. Uh, he does some pretty good voices. It's a pretty quick book. Like it doesn't take a long time to get through, which means I'm really excited to just like jump back in and listen to another version. Uh, and I'm very, very excited for John's reading because he does such a good job with classic material. It just like, he br like really brings it to life. Yes, we're super, super excited for John's version. And we're going to have teaser. We're going to have an excerpt from that in the stories episode to wet everybody's palate. So something to look forward to for next week. Great. Let's start with a high-level overview of the plot, right? Most people are probably aware of the premise, but just to kind of brush everybody up on the specifics. The story is centered around a character named Gabriel John Utterson, an attorney, and he is investigating the strange doings of his friend Dr. Jekyll and a murderer named Mr. Hyde, right? 
And so, as Alan said, like the twist at the end is that, aha, he finds out that they're the same person. Dr. Jekyll is kind and patient. He's very, very well respected. He works hard to try and repress the Hyde version of himself, but obviously he isn't always successful. And the story has this splash of science fiction, which makes some of the stuff we're going to talk about today. I kind of debated whether or not it was in scope, but it sort of has this splash of science fiction because in order to combat his evil urges, the doctor develops a serum that he hopes will suppress the murderous side of him. But what it does is to create his alter ego, Mr. Hyde. Is that why he makes the serum? That's a, yeah. I, I thought it was, he just wanted to, he wanted to suppress his murderous side. He that's did. literally what I just said. No, no, no. That's I'm, I'm asking you this. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I interpreted it differently. Okay. Tell me. Um, because the final chapter of the book is like the little memoirs yeah. of Dr. Jekyll. I thought that he wanted a serum that I thought he was trying to develop some kind of serum that would remove his uh, inhibitions. Oh, maybe I miss, maybe I misinterpreted it then. Also, I mean, I could be wrong. I'll I'll just finish. Then we we can come to our own conclusions. Great. So um, I thought it was, he was trying to develop this serum that removes inhibitions. And so uh, in order to, further experimental medicine. He thought that without the constraints of society, right, uh, then he could be a a miraculous doctor uh, or whatever he wants to do. And then, but once he took the serum, he turned into Hyde and all this newfound freedom came with it. But he still, then he discovered that he's kind of a, a horrible guy. And so after taking it just a few times, he quickly finds himself being Hyde as the default, and then he has to take the serum to transform back to transform into Jekyll. And every time he falls asleep, he would wake up as Hyde again. So uh, he would basically take the serum as Hyde to indeed remove those murderous instincts because the tables had flipped. And I'd also never seen that before. We'll we'll, we'll get more into this in the pop culture s- section. But uh, I was kind of surprised by the mechanics of the serum and how they worked uh, in the original literature. It's interesting. So I just looked it up because I didn't want to be made a fool. No, no one wants that. <laughs> uh, and according to darkuniversewiki.com. The, the pinnacle of all knowledge. <laughs> it says that the serum was developed in an effort to control Edward Hyde. What I think is happening in the story is that the character, whoever he is, is is kind of both, right? And then what he takes is serum to try to suppress this like side of him that he doesn't love, and it splinters. So he's like then literally like tells he has two personalities versus one person who has like two sides of the coin, right? Who's good and bad. He becomes two internal personalities that are distinct from each other. Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm still trying to you know extrapolate from my own reading here. If he was taking the serum to control Hyde, why would he take it the first time? Hyde didn't exist until he took the serum. So there had to be something. Well, his, yeah, he knows he has this dark side. Mm. It just wasn't, my name is Edward Hyde. Gotcha. So, and then it created that alter ego. Okay. So it wasn't so much he was trying to suppress Him. his inhibitions. He was trying to suppress his impulses. Right. So, okay. His like carnal, Great. whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because then he goes on to say how as Jekyll, 
he's a balanced human being. Right. And then it was supposed to strip away the evil part, but instead it stripped away the good part and hide his pure evil. Exactly. It sort of just Whoops. like segmented them. That's what happens when, you know, you let it, let it simmer for too long. So what happens when you try to play God. We've seen it with Dr. Frankenstein, all of these doctors. We should have definitely put uh, Jekyll in our Mad Scientist episode. We missed that opportunity. We had a Mad Scientist episode? Yeah. No, we didn't. No, you're right. We didn't. <laughs> okay. Well, I had, I, we had one with Sarah um, Quincy where we talked about Cronenberg and Mad Scientist, but that was a following uh, Invisible Man. I, for, for a second, thought it was a whole Mad Scientist series we did, but don't listen to me. What the fuck do I know? Okay, here we go. We can certainly do a Mad Scientist episode. That might be fun. We'll add it to the list, our literal list. So there's so much to say about the history of this piece of literature. Say one thing. And about the impact that it had on pop culture. To really understand Jekyll and Hyde, we need to start with the author. Robert Louis Stevenson was born in November of 1850 in Scotland. Is it Louis or Lewis? I thought it was Lewis, but then I heard it's, I watched a bunch of like videos and stuff to prepare for this episode. And a lot of people said Louis. Wow. Maybe it's Lewis. I'll, uh, I'll just like flip back and forth a bunch so no one can get mad at me. Sure. In addition to today's subject matter, Stevenson is also known for writing, Alan, Treasure what? Island. I love Treasure Island. I know that you do. Also a novel called Kidnapped and a book of poems called A Child's Garden of Verses. Yeah. I, once I figured out that this was the same guy that wrote both. Yeah. Well, you know, Jekyll and Hyde and Treasure Island. I was like, wow, what else has he written? And it's like, like oh, I've, I've never heard of anything yeah. else. Those are his two hits. He was a two hit wonder. I mean, he had a lot of stuff. Yeah, but those are the ones that really sure. are famous. Right, that have survived like 200 years. Yeah. Stevenson had chronic health issues related to bronchitis throughout his life. Typical. He only lived to be 44 years old. Oh, no. But in that time, he had a fairly prolific writing career, often mixing in the literary circles of London and finally spending years living in Samoa. In December of 1894, Stevenson was sitting with his wife, struggling to open a bottle of wine. He said, quote, what's that? Followed by, quote, does my face look strange before collapsing? His death is thought to have been caused by a cerebral hemorrhage. And so these words, a requiem that he had written, are inscribed on his tomb per his wishes. Under the wide and starry sky, dig the grave and let me lie. Glad did I live and gladly die, and I laid me down with a will. This be the verse you grave for me. Here he lies, where he longed to be. Home is the sailor, home from sea, and the hunter home from the hill. He is buried in Samoa, on top of a mountain overlooking the ocean. According to Wikipedia, in 2018, he was ranked as the 26th most translated author in the world, just after Charles Dickinson. Wow. Wait, who's higher than Dickens? I mean, I know there's plenty, but 26 seems low. Number one, Agatha Christie. <laughs> Suck it, Bible. <laughs> well, it's author. There's no, like, known author of the Bible. Jules Verne <laughs> is number... Mr. King James, I believe. <laughs> so number two is Chris Oyakhilomi who is the founder and president of Love World Incorporated, what? also known as Christ Embassy, based in Nigeria. Okay. Number three is Jules Verne. Four, Shakespeare. Five, Enid Blyton. 
six, Barbara Cartland. A lot of people I don't know. Uh, yeah. Danielle Steele, Vladimir Lenin, Hans Christian Andersen, Stephen King is 10. A bunch of Germans <laughs> come in next. Nora Roberts, Mark Twain is 17. Dostoevsky is 18. <laughs> Pope John Paul II is 21. Leo Tolstoy is 25. A lot of surprising. Yeah, it's interesting. I would have thought Shakespeare would, ha- you know, would be higher, but I mean, I get it. the The metric is weird, you know, right. because like if you sell a trillion paperback novels, you're higher on the list, right? So yeah, so that's how Stephen King outdoes outsells the Pope. Yeah, there you go. Out as as out translated. Done. Yeah. I mean, honestly, he's probably selling a lot more copies than the Pope. Yeah. Oh, totally. All right. So I wasn't expecting this little twist and turn that I found in the research. Oh. But there is a little twist and turn. Okay. Keep teasing. Are you ready? Just you, keep teasing for a bit. You buckled up? I never unbuckled. <laughs> Jekyll and Hyde was published when Stevenson was 36 years old. But the root of the inspiration can be traced back to Stevenson's childhood bedroom. Stevenson grew up with a cabinet in his bedroom that was built by a man named William Brody. Brody was a well-respected and successful cabinet maker and locksmith in Edinburgh. He was so good at his job, he was made deacon of the Incorporation of Ritz, which is described as more of like a, a guild. You know, it's, he's not like a religious deacon. It's kind of like being the head of the guild. I was going to say, how does one become a deacon? What is a deacon? It's like a woodworking guild. So I think a deacon is like a leadership position. And in the church, obviously, it's like a religious leader. But in general, I think that phrase is used to be like the president of a guild or other things can be a deacon. So you could be the deacon of this podcast. I am the deacon of this podcast. What am I? Assistant to the deacon. (laughs) So this position also gave him a seat on the city council. So this guy was connected. He was important. He was very well respected, right? Mm -hmm. Because of his role as a locksmith. So he not only was he this cabinet maker, but he also was a locksmith. He, He had like many trades. And because he was a locksmith, he had access to keys of many of the well to do homes in the neighborhood, right? Sure. So what would happen is that as, you know, someone would drop off their keys in order to make a copy or whatever, he would make like a secret wax mold and make his own set of keys. So he had like mm. secret backup keys to everybody's houses. They didn't know about this? Right. Because that's like standard locksmith practice now. What? But they, but they, you, if you go to a locksmith in New York, they don't know where you live. Um, he knows all of these people. So I, I have multiple memories of going to get keys copied. And when you go to copy the front door to your building... So, like, if you don't have, like, a doorman or, any, or like, an automatic door or anything like that, uh, and you have to, like, unlock your front door, I've been asked, like, what my address is. Specifically, so because, cause I know, I thought it was, like, super, super weird, and I used to give, like, a fake address. Because, again, like, why, why does this guy need to know what where I live? And then one time I just asked, and he's like, well, I'm a locksmith. I, I, I'm just basically making a library of all the locks, all the front door locks in the building so that, you know, if you call this locksmith number to, cause you're locked out, then I can just use the key to that building 
uh, or if anyone else calls, I just have a giant library of keys. That way I don't have to pick or break a lock. They could also break into your house. So wouldn't it be better just to have your name or something versus having your address? Sure. But so, you know, say your next door neighbor calls because they're locked out. And then it's like, well, we can actually get you into the front door of your building. I can't get you into the unit. We'll have to pick that lock. Half the time, it's because people just walk out the front building door and it locks automatically. Mm-hmm. You know? Interesting. So that, that's at least how it was explained to me. It still seems pretty shady. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. I would, I understand the logic of that, of leaving the keys with the locksmith, but I'm weary of the address piece. Like, just leave it under my phone number or something, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, I get it. Yeah. I also don't like it. Did you do it? Did some locksmith have access to our apartment? No, this time, all the buildings... Apparently, our front door key is impossible to copy. We had to order directly from the building. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Because they're jerks. We're extra secure. Mm. (laughs) So, okay, so what he would do with these keys, you ask? Well... He would use them to break into the homes of the rich and wealthy in his town undetected and rob these families. So in essence, Brody lived this double life to polite society. He was successful, respected, professional, and he had the trust of his community. Not only did he provide furniture and services for the town, but he also had leadership and political positions, right? However, Behind closed doors, Brody was a burglar, a gambler, an adulterer. He had two secret mistresses and became the father to five children. I'm going to quote here from Wikipedia. Quote, he reputedly began his criminal career around 1768 when he copied keys to a bank door and stole 800 pounds, then enough to maintain a household for several years. In 1786, He recruited a gang of three thieves, John Brown, a thief on the run from a seven-year sentence of transportation, George Smith of Berkshire, a locksmith who ran a grocer's shop in Cowgate, and Andrew Ainsley, a shoemaker. By 1785, Brody was spending his evenings gambling at a tavern on flesh market clothes owned by a Mr. Clark, but his public reputation was high. And in the summer of 1788, he was chosen to sit on a jury in the high court, end quote. Uh, I just want to throw in one little factoid there. Just, just as a metric, how much do you think 800 pounds in 1780 would be today? In pounds or dollars? In, in U.S. dollars, just because that's what we're most familiar with. Mm, well, they said you can maintain a household for several years. He's a rich household, too, so he's... So I would say $1 million. Uh, (laughs) Shooting a little high. It's $177,000. It rounds up to $178,000. You're right. I guess a million (laughs) dollars is a lot of money to maintain a household for several years. I mean, depends on the household. I was just picturing him as like, you know, a political leader. Like he has a reputation to uphold. In all fairness, I did this conversion to the pounds right now and the pound is like tanking hard yeah so had we done this a couple years ago who knows it would it could have been in in the trillions cool million yeah a cool mill (laughs) so right so brody's trajectory here is that after this initial bank break-in he kind of gets the taste for 
this life of crime, if you will. And he's one of those like exceptionally annoying criminals because he's already kind of like well to do. But he then like recruits, he kind of creates this circle. He has this gambling ring that goes on. Like everything about him is just like a con man. Mm -hmm. You know, he appears as very, very, very well to do, very important, very charming. But in reality, you know, even with like his relationships, he's not being open and honest with his partners. He's lying. You know, everything is a lie, essentially. Sounds like someone we know. So this goes on for several years um, until he faces his downfall. So I'm quoting here from the All Things Interesting article, quote, a planned heist on an excise office failed and Brody went to the authorities to claim a king's pardon. He ratted out Smith and Ainsley, who were also there, Hmm. who in turn ratted out Brody as the man behind the robberies. Brody fled to the Netherlands, but he was arrested in Amsterdam and sent back to Edinburgh. Brody would flee to the Netherlands. He was then hanged in front of 40,000 people. I thought you were going to say in front of 40 people, Mike. That's a very specific detail. (laughs) 40,000 is so many. Is it? I, I guess for then. I mean, for like, a, I don't know. It just feels like a large, that's like a concert, you know? Oh, yeah. It's like we're going to see Lady Gaga, but we're going to see this criminal be hanged, be killed. I guess it's like, so when was this? This was like 1890? Oh, 1700s. Sorry, so yeah, but it's like late 1700s at this yeah. point. 40,000 people. Where where was this? Edinburgh, Scotland. Okay. I guess, yeah. How big was the town? Like, what I mean, was it's the... it's a big city in Scotland. But yeah, I mean, if if someone is getting hanged and you don't have the internet, aren't you going to go watch? You have nothing else to do. I'm not going to go watch someone be hanged. You can either plow your fields, die of the black death. That's the... <laughs> you are wildly all over the place right now. <laughs> or you can go watch this guy. Right, I'm going to cut public this off execution. before you say something. I have to edit out. So there's actually rumors that Brody built the gibbet that he was hanged on, or the gallows. Oh, is that what it, the, the, the gibbet is the same thing as the... Yeah, as gallows, correct. Mm. Which, because again, he was a woodworker, right? Sure. It's kind of like that rumor that like a woman executed Ted Bundy, you know? What do you mean? Well, Ted Bundy was this very prolific, terrible serial killer in the United States, killed, targeted young women killed them in horrific ways. A lot of women like, you know, really obviously had like issues and you can never see an executioner, right? When somebody gets the death penalty, they always wear a hood for their safety, Mm. but there's all of these rumors that do they still do that? mm -hmm, That her, like that the executioner had these like very feminine eyelashes and eyes and like really looked like a woman, but like, it's kind of that thing of like execution lore, I guess, but also like this revenge of the women against, you know, this man that killed so many of them. Jeez. I, I never knew I was going to be interested in execution lore. Here we are. Happy October. You know, I actually know where we can get an electric chair. I'm really not interested in that. Someone was just talking about it the other day. Who? We were on set and someone was saying, anyone want an electric chair? That's crazy. Did you report them? No, it's, it's, these are needed things. I would not allow an electric chair in the home. I think it's the worst type of way to die. Really? Yes. The one worst. Of, no, one of, though. So I can th- think of significantly worse ways. Okay. Mr. Imagination. Uh, but that's it. No, I, I, the electric chair scares me very much. Yeah. 
it's 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 one of the more terrifying ways outside of like getting real creative with torture exactly yeah okay so there's a pub in edinburgh named for brody as well as one in ottawa and one in new york city oh yes is that the jekyll and hyde club no it's really funny you say that actually though because because i was outside it and i wanted i took a picture for you and then found out it closed I think we were together. No, I took a picture for you and sent it to you. You just think about it. No, because I sent no, no, it no, to no, no, no. Okay. So one of my very, very best friends, Olivia, she, she does, uh, she's designed some of our merch before our Bigfoot merch and our, uh, Ouija planchettes. Mm-hmm. So shout out to Olivia, all of dying. But Olivia grew up in Manhattan and would go like had birthday parties all the time growing up as a kid at Jekyll and Hyde. It was like this very kitschy, bar um like themed bar right like horror themed bar and there would be like smoke and it was kind of like a chuck e cheese but like for horror for kids that's cool yeah and so she was visiting she doesn't live here anymore but she was visiting a few months ago and we walked by and she was like you don't know what this is and we found out that i think during the pandemic it closed Mm. we were so bummed but anyway r.i.p to jekyll and hyde that we never got to go to but olivia said it was best memories of her childhood yeah it looked pretty cool yeah super cool we'll have to have olivia on to recall all of her jekyll and hyde stories sure well maybe that can come in the jekyll and hyde stories episode (laughs) okay so right we've talked about brody we understand brody now we're going to switch back to how brody's story intersects with robert lewis stevenson Mm. or robert louis stevenson let's call him lewis (laughs) So Stevenson grew up in the Newtown region of Edinburgh. Stevenson's bedroom was on the second floor of the family home. And at the end of his bed sat a mahogany veneer cabinet. And you can actually look up photos of this cabinet. It looks kind of like a tall, like armoire type of thing with two doors. Okay. And so spoiler alert, right? Brody had built this cabinet. Mm. This was a Brody original cabinet. Sure. And so we have... This very prominent, and this is, you know, a hundred years later or whatever. Wait a sec. Brody was a woodworker and a locksmith. Yeah, correct. Uh, a, a man of all, a man for all seasons. A renaissance man. Mm-hmm. I wonder what his favorite seasons were. Well, we could ask him, but he's dead. But he's dead. Stevenson has this cabinet in his house growing up. Mm-hmm. I am sure that he is aware of Brody's story, right? There's pubs named after him. It's this big deal in Edinburgh, this history. Sure. And so it doesn't take a lot to assume, you know, Stevenson would have heard about this and maybe it could have helped inspire a dual personality type situation, mm-hmm. especially someone who's very well respected, has a secret life, has this other side to them, right? Yeah. Rick Wilson wrote a book called The Man Who Was Jekyll and Hyde, The Lives and Crimes of Deacon Brody. And this book contains an interview with Stevenson where he talks about the connection between the character of Jekyll and Hyde and Deacon Brody. Stevenson shares a dream he had, quote, For instance, all I dreamed about Jekyll was that one man was being pressed into a cabinet when he swallowed a drug and changed into another being. And the cabinet comes into play there, right? Like his, he has this like literal dream. He has a dream about one man being forced into a cabinet, swallowing a drug, coming out another man. I get the subconscious ties there, but also it's literally the cabinet is the tie in here, you know, which is interesting. 
Not to mention in the book, there's like a very unnecessarily yeah. descriptive passage talking about the cabinet where yeah. the potion is kept. Exactly. I thought that was odd. It was like the anatomy chapter in uh, Moby Dick, the whale anatomy chapter. The one whale anatomy chapter? You know what I mean? The, the section. But yeah, like, and then they have to, because they have to break into that cabinet at one point, and they hire both a woodworker and a locksmith. See? Which I found interesting. Why Brody not? Brody is everywhere. And they, they, they do get in, no problem. They get in, no problem. Not no problem. It was actually quite difficult. Stevenson goes on to say that Deacon Brody wasn't part of his night vision. Quote, I certainly didn't dream that, meaning specifically about Brody. But in the room in which I slept as a child in Edinburgh, there was a cabinet. And a very pretty piece of work it was, too. From the hands of the original Deacon Brody. End quote. So it really seems to be no leap of the imagination to say that Brody inspired the character of Jekyll and Hyde in some ways. Hmm. It laid the, the foundation in Stevenson's head. And again, we like you just said, we see callbacks to the cabinet in the book. We see callbacks to woodworking and locksmiths. So I think there's some Easter eggs there. And I think it makes the, the book a more robust listen sure. when you know about this real life Brody character and, you know, how his life impacted that of Stevenson's life. I, absolutely. It's, it's, I didn't realize that this was going to be based on a, a person. I know, right? Kind of interesting. So what we're going to talk about next isn't one-to-one with what would have inspired Stevenson to write Jekyll and Hyde. A, because a lot of the research and the, you know, psychological understanding of it I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but a lot of that probably happened after he died. But there are some cases that I think might have intersected with his life. But two, because to me, Jekyll and Hyde is a little bit more of a science fiction story than like a a tale about like someone who suffers from multiple personality, right? It's like, it's a serum inspired situation. Well, I I think it's a fair thing to include, even if the, the term split personality disorder or even what it's been renamed today of what what is it dissociative identity disorder thank you uh, e- even if these terms weren't even a twinkling in some medical textbook's eye then th- these thing these ideas were still around well the cases still exist even if they weren't defined or understood right they would just get classified as some other psychosis or mental illness or something right or so, something even you know not to mention like scientific you know we can we can do the reverse where how these early cases have influenced so many future, you know, works later on. Well, that's exactly why I decided to keep it in, because even though, you know, we can't say, oh, this is why Stevenson wrote this, or this was in his life, you know, in his awareness, we can say that there's a bunch of works we're going to talk about later in the episode that are inspired by Jekyll and Hyde that certainly take this research into account. So. I just think it like helps round out the theme in general of this kind of, you know, dual or more personality within one character. Cool. Let's do it. Here we go. Quoting from myclevelandclinic.org, because I don't want to mess up any of the sciencey jargon here. Dissociative identity disorder, DID, is a mental health condition. People with DID have two or more separate identities. These personalities control their behavior at different times. Each identity has its own personal history, traits, likes, and dislikes. DID can lead to gaps in memory and hallucinations. 
believing something is real when it isn't. Dissociative identity disorder used to be called multiple personality disorder or split personality disorder. End quote. According to Cleveland Clinic, DID is usually a result of trauma, physical, or sexual abuse as a child. Right. And so the idea is that when something and you hear about dissociation all the time, right, with with mental health conditions, but if something really terrible is happening to you, the idea is that your your brain sort of like splinters to protect itself um, from kind of having to deal with the memories or deal with the the terribleness of what's happened. Mm -hmm. And again, we could do a whole nother exploration of this at some point. But I just wanted to include a few famous cases of DID here. It's not an all-inclusive list, but it's just a few cases that I thought were interesting. I'm going to start off with one case from the 1800s, again, kind of to illustrate what was happening during Stevenson's lifetime. So this is the case of Louis, or Louis, Vivette. As you will hear over and over again with the examples that we're about to share, he had a childhood marked by abuse and neglect. And then later, at the age of 17, while he was working outside in a field, a viper wrapped itself around his arm, which caused him to black out from the fear. He continued to have convulsions into the evening. And so the year is 1880, he was admitted into an asylum, where he eventually became stable for a brief period of time. And after being released, he would then be in and out of hospitals while these convulsions would return. And so the thing with him is that, right, like he ended up with these two distinct personalities. Mm-hmm. One, which the one clearly, you know, I will say that remembers maybe the trauma of the Viper, loses the loss of his legs, while the other can walk totally fine. Interesting. Yep. Why? why? They say the brain, the brain-body connection. The brain works in mysterious ways. <laughs> it's believed that he had up to 10 personalities after this event, And some had the ability to walk while others didn't, right? So it wasn't one-to-one. It was kind of like these ones could walk, these ones couldn't. Hmm. And we see themes like that a lot with cases of DID. So the case of Chris Costner Sizemore. She was the real-life inspiration for the book and film The Three Faces of Eve, if anyone is familiar with that. Nope. Though in reality, she had 22 different personalities, not three. In the movie, I think they pare it down to make it a little more palatable. Mm. But 22 different personalities. I'm sure this is a common trait among people who have this condition, but some of Chris's personalities had varying levels of skills, meaning, for example, some of them knew how to drive and some of them didn't. Which is, you know, it makes sense if you have 22 people, like, you know, how many of them can drive? Probably (laughs) a few can't. (laughs) I don't know. I'm sorry, that's just like... It's a little lame as I was expecting, like some of them are brain surgeons. Others are astronauts. It's like, no, some, some can drive. <laughs> sure. If you look at it that way. Others know how to use a spoon. It's like. <laughs> so there was one case where the patient was quote unquote cured of this, of this condition. The case of Karen Overhill, who had 17 distinct personalities. She again had suffered from childhood abuse at the hands of both her father and grandfather. A man named Dr. Bear was able to help Karen through hypnotism and other therapies to eventually integrate all of these personalities into one personality again. So she was one, you know, holistic thinker. I don't know the right way to say that, but you know what I'm saying. And then final uh, honorary mention here to Kim Noble of the UK, 
who had over 100 personalities. And again, this is a result of extreme trauma and abuse that she suffered as a child. And not one could drive. (laughs) God. Okay, so those are kind of like the, you know, because again, the point of this podcast, right, is to connect horror into real life mythology or history. And so I think those were the ways that I saw the story of Jekyll and Hyde connecting to real life in, in different elements. I think you did a great job. Thank you. Do we have any historic examples of someone taking drugs and becoming a different person? Splitting their personality into an evil murderer and a doctor? I mean, that's a little specific, but sure. Do we have any of that? I think this is science fiction. So no, I don't think that that really happens. Mm. So sorry. I mean, just curious. You know, you never know. Sometimes you pull a rabbit out. (laughs) As we teased at the beginning of the episode, there are a ton of direct adaptations of Jekyll and Hyde. Most of which are quite boring. (laughs) It's just so true. Also, a ton of more abstract interpretations. Some are less boring. So let's start with some of the namesake versions. And again, we did not watch all 19 versions of the film. Because they're so boring. I really like, you know, we picked Jekyll and Hyde in October because we were like, this is spooky. It is. And certain versions are spooky, but not the vast majority are not. But also like you and I had both previously started the book. Yeah. Just and neither of us had finished it. Just like years back, we'd pick we'd start reading just and we just like dropped off. Uh, Jekyll and Hyde being in the universal monster verse. Yep. Uh, a, a, a monster verse that we love. We have to round it out. Yeah. And it's a cool. It, also, Jekyll and Hyde hold a very, now that we're talking in the pop culture section, yep. hold a very special place in my heart because of a, of a film that we both really, really love. Come on. What is it? Come on. You can do it. Come on. You like this movie. The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. That's correct. A fantastic movie. Yes. And also my absolute favorite depiction of Jekyll and Hyde. And also I thought this... this, But you haven't seen the Universal Monster version. uh, No. Well, we we scrubbed through some of the old ones. And none of them looked like... None of the hides look anything like the hide from League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. No. Well, yeah, they're much older. Well, right. But I would, first off, because League of Extraordinary Gentlemen was my first uh, exposure to the story of Jekyll and Hyde. Okay. Uh, And so I thought that when this guy took a, he would take a potion to transform. He would, his body would physically morph into this giant hulking creature. Uh, and then eventually the potion would wear off and he would turn back in, you know, it'd basically be like a super soldier serum that also makes you evil, uh, which I thought was like so freaking cool. And then we get into all the other film depictions and that never happens again. They're very, very hit and miss. Um, but usually you turn it, he turns into like just another guy. Well, I mean, I, I think he turns into something that's, not like hulking, but kind of almost handicapped. Like in a lot of cases, he develops a kind of like a hunchback or a limp, like things like that. Like he changes physically, but like in a realistic way where it's like a split personality versus a science fiction thing of somebody like bulking up. Well, I was really confused because in the book, one of the very first 
descriptions of Hyde is as a juggernaut. Like that's the word that they use. You get to the end of the book and when Jekyll is describing Hyde himself and the description is, well, he's newer, so he's younger and he's shorter. <laughs> it's like, okay, she's turned into a little evil child. <laughs> What's going on here? That is not what I picture when I hear the word juggernaut. Yeah. I was picturing Hyde from League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, just dressed in nice clothes that don't rip, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, obviously, he got hammed up for th- that I'm version. But somewhere in between, I was expecting a big monstrous man, not just in, in both physicality, not just in character. Fair enough. That's what I have to say about that. I feel cheated. The top ranked of all of the Jekyll and Hyde versions, according to, to IMDb, is the 1931 film, which is just simply called Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. This is the universal monster version. It also makes sense, despite its age, it's one of the more recognizable versions for this reason, right? Because it has the firepower of the universal worlds. It's a pre-code horror film that what, starred... What does that mean? Every time I say that, you ask that. Well, I, because I forget. It means before the ratings, you know, before films had to be censored. Got before it. censorship. If, if I forget, there's someone out there that doesn't know either. It stars Frederick March, and it was nominated for three Academy Awards, and March won for Best Actor. A horror film. In March won? March is the actor who won for best. He oh. won the Academy Award for Best Actor. Mr. Marsh. Yes. Gotcha. For playing Jekyll and Hyde. I see. He played both. Yes. Okay. And when I say it was pre-code, it was just barely. It was made only one year before the ratings crackdown. Ha! Got him. Well, it's filled with very, very explicit content for the time. And it was re-released five years later with eight minutes of the film removed to meet the new standards. Interesting. Maybe we should watch this. Yeah. We should have watched it for this, for sure. Absolutely. I feel like we did not do our due diligence. Maybe we can watch it and talk about it on the next, on the stories episode. I guess we didn't scrub through the official one. We we, we scrubbed through some of the old, because there's multiple very There's so ones. many. That's the thing. There's just so many of them. Yeah. Oh, you know what? The official universal one wasn't available on streaming. Oh, that's why. And based, uh, at least on the streaming services that we have access to. Almost all of them. Which, which is, yes, to, to our financial burden. <laughs> and based off scrubbing through a lot of the other old ones, it didn't seem worth renting. But I'm, I'm rethinking that decision now. Yeah, well, we'll watch it for the stories episode. We'll come back. Cool. The film had one of the biggest budgets of any horror film at the time. $300. Coming in over 500000 Whoa. And it was a hit with audiences grossing over $1.3 at the time in 1931. That, that was the box office? Uh-huh. That's like a few trillion in today's money. That's right. There is also an earlier version of the film from 1920, making it a silent movie. Um, this film was actually released by Paramount. And you can watch the entire film on Wikipedia. If you go to the Wikipedia page for <laughs> Jekyll and Hyde, the entire film is embedded there. You just play it on the... Yes. Wow. You just play it right in this Wikipedia player. God bless you, Wikipedia. <laughs> it's a, I, I, people give me shit for using Wikipedia all the time, but it really truly is Who gives a gem. you shit? A lot of listeners. Not, name one. Call them out. No. And again, surprisingly, just because it's a silent film from 1920, it comes in at number two with the <laughs> highest ranked Jekyll and Hyde films of all time, which 
a lot of them were made after the year 2000. So okay, just a is, sense of the Jekyll and Hyde landscape is a little bleak. Okay, is League of Extraordinary Gentlemen on that list? No. Okay, well, that's the problem. They're clearly not including the best movies. There you go. Uh, the, so in third place is a musical version. So I'm going to set this up. There is This is really a play, right? There was a musical play version of Jekyll and Hyde made. I actually had a few friends who are in kind of the musical theater space tell me like that it has some hits like it's kind of like this can't be classic guess who the star is the singer and the star anthony bourdain david hasselhoff really yes wow and my friend alex is like hey there's some bangers in there like there's some really fun songs i'm a doctor he's a bad guy they, they yeah they that's, hired that's, you that's they the hired one. you to write it that's the single the the hit single so if anyone's looking for a very campy fun version like a good, you know, popcorn night with your friends. What's, what, what is that version called? It's called like Jekyll and Hyde the musical. Okay. Because it's, they filmed the play. And so it's like a filmed play. And what year is it? Because you're going to have to, that's, impo it's impossible to sort through these because they're all named the same freaking thing. It's from 2001. There's also a film that I actually had watched growing up because my, we had a copy of it, I think on DVD or VHS Mary Riley from 1996. Which we did watch. We did watch. Stars our beloved Julia Roberts and John Malkovich. It's based on a novel by the same name from 1990, written by Valerie Martin. And it's a retelling of Jekyll and Hyde through the eyes of Mary, who's a maid in the Jekyll household. Quick question. Quick answer. Is John Malkovich canceled? I don't think so. I great because I love him. Oh. I just confuse him with Kevin Spacey. Kevin Spacey is indeed canceled. He is indeed canceled. Yeah. Uh, so I I really love John Malkovich. I've never seen Being John Malkovich. It's, a, it's such a fun movie. Is it a horror movie? <laughs> Not at all. Oh, I was like maybe we can watch it for horror movie club. No, we can just watch it for fun. Oh, okay. Um, it's I I just I love his stuff. And also, my father is obsessed with Julia Roberts. Oh, she was a staple sure. in our household. I think all fathers are. Not all fathers. Some fathers like other fathers. <laughs> sure, yeah, that's a good point. I didn't even know this movie existed. So the fact that there is a Julia Roberts movie that I don't think he even knows about is going to really make his day. You can give him the, the, the DVD as a gift. Let's just keep the VHS. We'll keep it simple. <laughs> Unlike the universal horror version of the story, this film was a box office flop, despite its big name talent. It only made back $12 million of the $47 million budget. I mean, it looked so expensive. <laughs> it did? Yes. I thought it looked like a masterpiece theater film. I disagree. I think, I mean, first off, they had to spend $39 million on Julia Roberts. Uh, 40 bucks to get John Malkovich. Um, and then the rest was the incredible set design. It's well, we, you and I went back about whether they were on, like, in a studio or on a location. I think, and we could probably solve this with INDB, but we're not going to. We're just going to wildly speculate. I think it was all built sets. Well, then, yeah, that's going to cost a lot of money. Simple, for a couple reasons. One, there's some sets, some were 100% sets, like the the uh, operation, the operating theater. What's it called? Is that yeah, the, the operating theater. Yep. Um, but also, even when we're outside in the world, we never see a wide shot. Well, the outside, I definitely think like the sidewalk and like the front stoop, all that was definitely like a set. 
But to me, I'm like, why don't you just get a really cool, like for all these interiors, like like a really cool British mansion house or something, you know? I mean, which they might have, but also, you know, they got, they got John Malkovich money. Right. That which which means there's a lot left over in the budget to build sets. <laughs> um, also, one more thing about this movie, and I think this is why it might not have done well. At least this was the, the big glaring issue with this movie for me. Sure. <laughs> so when Jekyll turns into Hyde, he becomes John Malkovich with a wig. <laughs> and everyone's like, oh my God, who are you? It's like, you're the, you're the same guy, dude. Uh, there's, there's really no mistaking this, which I just found so silly. Yeah, it def- that part is definitely silly. Like, he is such a distinctive looking person. It's not even like they changed his facial hair, his other stripe, nothing. They put him in a wig and that he was suddenly a different person. And his acting is great. So everyone has like UK accents, right? Well, I think, I mean, I'm no expert in accents, but I think maybe Mary Riley was supposed to be Irish. Uh, yeah, she seemed very, she was doing yeah. a bit of an Irish accent. Like she was an uh, immigrant. Right. But then you had but John everyone Malkovich else Scottish, doing yeah. 100% American. Yeah. No, not even an attempt to do an accent. And I'm sure they tried it and they're like, mm, no, it's not working. And instead of casting someone that actually do the role well, they're just like, you know what? Just make them just American. Do your own voice. That makes perfect sense. I mean, Julie Roberts, God bless her. Like we love her. But her accent was a little hit and miss sometimes. Yeah. She does a better Aaron Brockovich. Yeah. Oh, she's, she's a mate. Like, I'm not here to talk shit about anybody. It was really just the choices of the production, you know? No, it it was a fun movie. I really, I really enjoyed watching it. Uh, but I can a hundred percent understand why it would flop at the box office. Going back in time a bit, there's a TV movie from 1968 that Alan made us watch for some reason. We had all of these really fun Jekyll and Hyde options. And he said, no, this TV movie from 1968, we immediately, I think after the opening credits ended, we turned it off. That's how bad it was. Oh, oh, that's where I got my notions about uh, Jekyll creating the formula to remove inhibitions. You got any notions? We watched it for 30 seconds. No, that's not true. You left and I kept watching. (laughs) Uh, And that's like, because you have... I don't even know who was who because no one introduced themselves. They all just call each other Mr. Uh, <laughs> so I assume one of them was Jekyll and he was defending his position about how if, if uh, the medical field got rid of moral constraints, how think of the wonders we could do. That was like right in the opening scene. Well, that stars Jack Palance and that's all I'm going to say about that. I don't think we're recommending that as as a Jacqueline Hyde film to watch or series to watch. It's an excellent thing to put on as background at a party. <laughs> there you go. Because it's got it's nice four three aspect ratio. Yeah, it's like a, a hipstery fi- thing. They to filmed do. it on tape. Yeah, they look. It looks like they mastered on the VHS. <laughs> uh, it's it's truly sp- and the, the the frame rate looks like a soap opera. There's a film from 1971 called Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde that I really wanted to watch, but I was vetoed to watch the TV movie. Sorry. Here is the IMDb tagline. 
A Victorian scientist tests a serum that transforms him into a sensuous murderess. This, oh, oh my. Yeah. There's also a film called Edge of Sanity from 1989. IMDb tagline. When Henry Jekyll's experiments with cocaine have gotten out of control, <laughs> he transforms into a hideous Jack Hyde. As Hyde, he searches the London streets at night for his prey in whorehouses and opium dens. What the fuck? Why, but why this are you one, this Alan, this one stars Anthony Perkins. Why are we didn't watch it? Because you wanted to watch the TV movie. I'm sorry. You ruined it. I'm sorry you didn't ruin it. I know, but then we had to watch League of Extraordinary Gentlemen again because it's so good. <laughs> there is also a film from 2007 called Jekyll. Quoting from IMDb, London, 2007. Tom Jackman is the only living descendant of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He has made a deal with his dark side, a body share. What Mr. Hyde doesn't know is that Tom has a family. There's a wife and two children that he'll do anything to protect from his dark side. With all the resources of modern technology and the best surveillance hardware, he's determined to keep his dark side in line. He's done a deal with his own devil. And then just to fire rat rattle through some here, Jekyll and Hyde from 1990, another TV movie. Of course, Abbott and Costello meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1953. And finally, the one thing we did watch for this episode the Scooby-Doo episode <laughs> of Jekyll and Hyde. Uh, n- not entirely. We watched, we accident. we thought we were watching the original. We fucked that up too. We did. Oh we, we, we watch, it was kind of a callback to the original series. There's a whole Jekyll and Hyde episode. And in this one, it's in one of the new Scooby-Doo series and they go on to a movie lot. Uh, because they're remaking the movie that they made in the original series. So it's like a callback to the original Scooby-Doo episode. Yeah. It also wasn't very good. <laughs> but the original Scooby-Doo series is solid gold, so we should really... Right. I only really like watch the original Scooby-Doo and then Scooby-Doo and the Witch's Ghost, of course. Of course. Of course. All right. So those are like some films that we're highlighting. Again, not holistic, but films that we're highlighting... With the namesake, Jekyll and Hyde. So now we're going to talk about films that follow the pattern of Jekyll and Hyde. Okay, here we go. If you haven't seen Split from 2016, it's an M. Night Shyamalan film starring James McAvoy. And Alan, do you like it? Love it. And that character carries over to the follow-up in the trilogy. Yeah. Of uh, Glass, I believe. Yeah, or, yeah exactly. Because the first one, Unbreakable, then comes Split. Then, yeah. 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 So it's an extreme multiple personality story. Three girls are kidnapped by a single man who's been diagnosed with 23 different distinct personalities. They must try to escape before the apparent emergence of a frightful new 24th personality. Yeah, I I like Split. I like the series. I like all three. They're they're super fun. I always forget that this is an M Night Shyamalan movie because it's the they're I mean Split is because it's a, a bit more thriller horror-esque yeah but like unbreakable you don't get that vibe very much at all oh really i feel like i associate unbreakable the most out of the three because it was so much earlier so it felt like i remember it so clearly being like oh it's m night you know yeah i think unbreakable came out during a time when a lot of other superhero movies were starting to come out it was before like iron man 
Right. You know, that's like a, the definitive turning point that created the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So this was during a time of like the weird Fantastic Four movie or the first Hulk, you know, and this was supposed to be like, ah, another superhero movie, but this doesn't feel like a superhero movie at all. I love this movie. It's so fun. It's like a really awesome character piece of like, mm-hmm. what would it be like if someone develops superpowers in the real world? And then being unbreakable. Yes. And then that carries over into split of, well, what if there was a villain in the real world? You know, what if there was someone who has powers who is also evil? It's just a cool premise. And like that premise has been uh, explored in many other in many other stories. But for me, this is this is a special one. I guess you're right, too. And I kind of forgot about the like elevated elements of those characters and I think that kind of ties it in really nicely to Jekyll and Hyde because we were talking before about like, oh, it's science fiction-y, mm-hmm. but so are Unbreakable and Split, really. Yeah. You know, they're not like hu- a human who has multiple personality disorder. It's this like extension of that into the realm of like, he can climb the fucking walls. Well, yeah. It, I mean, sorry, spoilers for Split. Yeah. But that's, um, not, that's fine. You guys still watch it. It is for the vast majority of the movie. It's just a guy yeah. with multiple personalities. And then you think like, oh, wow, what's this last one going to be? And the last one, he actually has superpowers. Yeah. It's like this, this, this foreboding thing actually warrants that foreshadowing. Yeah, for sure. Next, Alan, we have a little character, I'll say, because it spans many movies and, and mediums. A character called the Hulk. I mean, I just touched on it. Saying, Take it away. Talking about the original, you know, talking about the first Hulk movie, which was not the first Hulk movie. <clears throat> Actually, I don't know. Was it the first Hulk movie? I know there was like the 70s TV show with Lou Ferrigno. Well, the comic books precede any TV or movie. Of course. The, uh, the Hulk, I think, came in the 60s. I'm not quite sure. My classic Hulk is a bit rusty. Oh, boy. However, yeah, the, t- for anyone unfamiliar... <laughs> You have a very normal doctor, Dr. Bruce Banner, who turns into this hulking monstrosity. Who's green. He is green, yes. As soon as we were decided to do this episode, yeah, I know, I immediately thought of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and their Hulk character is Hyde. Like, he's the tank of the team. Yeah. And he's this, like, very clever little doctor um, (laughs) who then would take a formula to lose his capacity for science and instead gain it in brawn. Mm-hmm. Like that's his role. He can, he can switch roles if you will on the team. And just like the Hulk, his monstrous persona cannot be trusted, cannot be relied upon until they finally find the harmony between the two personas, uh, where there's some kind of trust develops. And I, I you know, Hulk has always been a very, one of my favorite superheroes, holds a very strong place in my heart. And there are so many stories about Bruce Banner on the run, trying his absolute best to keep what he, what he views as his evil persona under wraps, right? away from society, can't hurt anybody, and he'll do anything he possibly can to make that happen. It's very much like Jekyll and Hyde. Final thing I'm going to talk about here. In 1963... A non-horror film was released. And if you look at the ranked Jekyll and Hyde films in order of popularity on IMDb, 
This one actually comes up as number one. I'm talking about the original Nutty Professor from 1963. (laughs) Okay. This version was written, directed, and stars Jerry Lewis, along with Stella Stevens and Del Moore. Why are you limiting yourselves to just the original? I'm not. And I, I had, I've not seen it, but it's what when you look up the best Jekyll and Hyde movies of all time, this is the number one version, not like the Eddie Murphy version, like this version of the film. I have not seen the original, but the Eddie Murphy version is remarkable. Gold. Yeah, absolutely. Love Eddie Murphy. Okay, so I'm basing all of these comments on the Eddie Murphy version. But yeah, you have a scientist who then can take a formula and become a different person with a completely different persona, different outlook on life. And there's just this balancing act between the two people trying to, two people trying to live one life. Right. It's very, very, very similar to Jekyll and Hyde. Except that Eddie Murphy doesn't stomp on children that we know of. I think the, like everything that we've mentioned with the exception of Split is really, really like verbatim almost Jekyll and Hyde. Like Mm. Hulk, my professor, you know, they really follow the format. I'd say Hulk is a bit more of a stretch, but it's in the right vein. But it's a doctor, you know, like there's elements there. He's a scientist, he's, you know. So is Jekyll. That's true. He's more medical. But actually, I mean, Bruce Banner specializes in uh, gamma radiation. There you go. Which in turn has quite a bit to do with medical physiology. Yeah. That's what I have to say about that. Jekyll and Hyde's lasting success speaks to human nature at its core. Did you write that? Yes. Cool. (laughs) Say it again. Jekyll and Hyde's lasting success speaks to human nature at its core. You're such a good writer. (laughs) Thank you. The complexity of what it means to be good or bad. And I have a lot to say about this, right? Like, I don't think people are born evil. I think there's like a lot of nurture that goes in i also think there's mental health conditions and all kinds of things like that but i don't think people are inherently evil some people are but i (laughs) literally the opposite of what i just said (laughs) (laughs) but i do think that there are like a range of human emotions and reactions and trauma and mental health issues and all these things that go into quote-unquote creating this spectrum of good and bad that being said I think humans can be many things, right? Like, I think you can be both a really great person and have, you know, another side to you. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're good or bad. You know, it's just whatever. I think that kind of doing the research here calls upon some of these, like, themes of how we think about this, especially within ourselves. And I think we are always our harshest critics, as we all know. Sure. It just kind of is like this reminder that, people can be multiple things, you know? And like, I, this is really like on a tangent now, but like it can be really hard if you're dealing with somebody who's difficult and I'm not talking about a murderer, right? That aside, if you're dealing with somebody who's difficult and I think the reminder always is that something has happened to make, to make that behavior come out of them. Sure. If they're being really harsh with you or whatever, it's because they're going through something or they're feeling something Or they've experienced something that has made them weary of this thing. So I think it's just like a good reminder for us all that like to be gentle with each other and to remember that you don't always know what's going on with people um, and what's causing them to be quote unquote bad or mean or whatever, because it's really usually something 
that's sad and that I wish they didn't have to deal with. And it's manifesting in a way that's annoying and they should take responsibility for that. But at the end of the day, you know, be kind to each other. That's right. If you have like a dictator performing genocide, you don't know what their home life is like. Like a a poignant like point about I'm talking about like your day to day interactions with people. Not you're not running into a dictator on the street. Usually not. Yeah, I I wholeheartedly believe that people like dictators or, you know, those kinds of people who, again, I think became that way because of their environments, but that those people should not have any power. I didn't realize you were pro-dictator. I'm not I'm not saying that I'm pro-dictator at all. I'm saying, like, lock them up, throw them away. But I'm not saying if you look at, for example, now I'm getting fluster go ahead if you look at serial killers Uh i'm not pro serial killer i'm anti serial killer Mm. if you look at serial killers and quote-unquote psychopaths so so often they suffer traumatic brain injuries as kids so often Mm. interesting i don't know what the exact rate is but it's very high um they also usually suffer extreme abuse and neglect extreme trauma there's a lot that goes into getting someone to that point sure and again i'm not a doctor so take it with a grain of salt but that's that's my soapbox of the day is a, is a good box to end on i'm actually going to leave us with a quote here from stevenson's original the strange case of dr jekyll and mr hyde quote with every day and from both sides of my intelligence the moral and the intellectual i thus drew steadily nearer to the truth by whose partial discovery I have been doomed to such a dreadful shipwreck that man is not truly one, but truly two. And so the point that he is making here is that mankind in general is not good or bad, that mankind in general is both. Right, they're gray. And yeah, that every individual, not just Jekyll and Hyde, mm-hmm. is both. That we all are. Right, and it's healthy to be such. Correct. The end. <laughs> okay, bye. Well, hang on here. So before we leave you, just a reminder, we have some very, very, very exciting Jekyll and Hyde themed stories. In addition to John Cook's excerpt of the original text next week, we also have another incredible story that I'm over the moon to share. And of course, don't forget about our merch sale. Code SPOOKY25, 25% off at lunaticsproject.com. Click on merch. I hope that this episode helps us kick off October in a funky, spooky way. I think it's the, the subject matter is not quite as dark, maybe, as we were expecting it to be. But I think we left you with some interesting, you know, films to explore. Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, for example. Also, there's uh, Henrietta and Eleanor, I think is the name. Right, the, like, feminine spin. Yeah, yeah, that, that, I, that was a fun one. I liked it a lot. It's a book. Uh, yes, uh, I, that was a book I picked up a while ago. It was a lot of fun. There you go. Yeah, again, there's like endless, endless things to talk about here. We're going to also be posting um, some in more in-depth reviews of some of these things on lunaticsproject.com. If you're not aware, we post tons of articles every week about kind of things that follow the themes that we're covering on the podcast, as well as just other things that, that we've we run into. Um, so check out lunaticsproject.com for all of our latest articles. There'll definitely be some Jekyll and Hyde content coming out for the next few weeks there. And happy October, everyone. We're going to leave you here. Stay safe. I hope you stay extra spooky now that we're in the holy month. And we'll talk to you very soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.
Thanks for listening. If you'd like some bonus content, consider supporting us on Patreon to access our patron-exclusive podcast, Horror Movie Club. Also head to lunaticsproject.com to check out our spooky merch and apparel. You can find us at Lunatics Project on Twitter and TikTok, and The Lunatics Project on Instagram and YouTube, where you'll find our short horror films, cemetery tours, and so much more. And please rate and review. A little feedback goes a long way to help us grow and get more content out there. Our cover art is by Pilar Kep, and musical bumpers are by Michaela Papa and Jordan Moser.